Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast looking at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinton. How are you, Andrew? I'm very well, thanks, Darren. How are you today? I'm good, I'm good. And... This week, we're doing something a little bit different on the podcast. If you were listening last week, you would have noticed that we had the wonderful Tony Black over as a guest to talk about uh, Henri-Georges Clouseau's 1953 classic Wages of Fear. Um, And as was only appropriate, Tony then invited us over to his own virtual gaffe and invited us to guest on his latest podcast, The New Wave, to discuss the remake and William Friedkin's 1977 remake sorcerer so with that in mind we hope you enjoy this sneak peek at the new wave New Wave, a podcast all about the new Hollywood cinema of the 1960s through to the 1980s. I'm your host, Tony Black, and I'm joined by two very special guests in a uh, very special crossover event, the uh, third crossover event we've had uh, so far on the New Wave to discuss uh, William Friedkin's 1977 pretty much masterpiece, Sorcerer. Joining me today from the 250 are Darren Mooney and Andrew Quinn. How are you doing, guys? Hello, Tony. How are you? We're on your turf. Today. <laughs> we are indeed. Yeah. Uh, playing, is... playing by your rules. <laughs> yeah. We have no idea how this is going to go, and I reckon you're already regretting inviting us. Uh, well, <laughs> I am now you've said that. Yeah, you've filled me with confidence there, Darren. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, as you said uh, off air, uh, are you ready for an explosive conversation? And this one is particularly explosive because it follows in the heels of your own podcast, which I was very uh, lucky to be on last week, um, as this goes out on on the 250 at least. It'll be a little bit longer when it's going out on the new wave, but you'll be able to go back through the archives in the 250 and find uh, my appearance on your episode on the 1953 film from Henry George Clouseau, The Wages of Fear, which Sorcerer is, of course, a remake of in 1977. I mean, time works differently in a quarantine. That's the logic here. (laughs) Well, this is it. We're we're recording in the thick of the COVID-19 pandemic, uh, (laughs) doing lots of recording. So it's it's interesting times, and interesting times to talk about um, this particular uh, film. Uh, So, I mean... I suppose the best way to get into this really is to ask you both generally what you make of Sorcerer before we start talking about the the inbuilt uh, nuts and bolts of the whole thing. And I suppose before we do that, the best thing to do is to give a little bit of a pricey about the film itself. So Sorcerer, which was directed by William Friedkin, is, uh, as I say, a remake of The Wages of Fear and it features... Four disparate men from different parts of the world who come together in a uh, South American town called Porvenir uh, and undertake a mission uh, to transport two trucks full of nitroglycerin to an oil refinery and face 
their destiny, I guess, on the way. And it's a stripped down, sweaty, masculine movie that has a fascinating backstory in history. But before we get into that, what did you guys then think of Sorcerer? I really love this. I remember, and again, this is probably something you're going to get into when you talk about the history of Sorcerer and the kind of the second life of Sorcerer, uh, because I kind of came to Sorcerer around 2014, which was when the reissue remastered Blu-ray was released, and it kind of generated a nice bit of buzz, because I think there's an argument to be made that Sorcerer is perhaps the last true undiscovered classic of 70s cinema, which is great to be able to be kind of talking about it in the context of this podcast, in the context of the new wave. Because, I mean, as as you're, as we're going to get into, it was maybe a difficult production. It was maybe also a huge financial flop. It was also maybe one of the films that is considered to have contributed to the failure of the new wave or the death of the new wave. Um, and so it's kind of fascinating to have had the opportunity to reappraise that and to have kind of come to it in that kind of context. Because... I remember everybody buzzing about it when they found it. Because, again, I, I'm a relatively young uh, cinephile. You know, I would have been, what, 2014? I would have been in my late 20s at the time. I would have known people who were around the same age as well who had never really heard of Sorcerer, never really watched Sorcerer. I'd only really noted it in terms of, like, William Friedkin, the movie that basically killed William Friedkin's career. So it was coming to it with this kind of sense of, but wait, what if this is actually good? And discovering that, yes, Yes, it is actually good. And I think, as we mentioned last week, I saw Sorcerer a long time before I saw The Wages of Fear. And I think maybe that colored my opinion of it slightly because, like, I think that The Wages of Fear is undoubtedly perhaps a more important film in the history of cinema. It's perhaps a more potent, uh, a more kind of weighty exploration of its core themes. It's perhaps more substantial in kind of what it's saying and what it's saying about what it's saying. But I also think that Sorcerer, for me, is a much more visceral experience. It's a film that I like a bit more. It's a film that I have a kind of more intrinsic, more emotional connection to. It's a film that I feel. And it's a film that I've watched a couple of times, actually, getting ready for this podcast. And it's every single time. It It's gripping. It grabs my attention. It holds my attention. And as I did research for this podcast, as I delved into what happened behind the scenes... Seeing what actually happened on screen, you can almost literally see the blood, sweat and tears that went into it. It's a striking production. I I adore this movie. Andrew, what about you then? Because you, did you come to this late as well as as Darren? Or is this sort of a film you've loved for decades? It, it wouldn't be possible for me to have come to this any later than I did. <laughs> <laughs> if I had come to this any later, then I wouldn't have seen the movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah and what did you think i liked it i think i think something darren said in the previous episode was very true like like there are people for whom metallica's whiskey in the jar is the definitive version because it's the one they've heard first now because i've seen wages of fear first i think it it's difficult to to like this more having said that it's it's an incredible movie because Darren had seen this before seeing Wages of Fear, I think it's 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 just more difficult to displace. But no, it's uh, it was tremendous, very very different movie, um, and very extremely new wavy. Like re, re, it, it like immediately it felt very De Palma esque, and it just kind of. For what you're trying to do, it really kind of felt like something that fits so well into that. I didn't come at this either uh, before The Wages of Fear. We're all in the same boat in some ways. I watched this a few years ago for the first time, so I'm I'm new to it in the era 
after it was, uh, and I'm sure we'll talk about this, but after it was remastered and put on Blu-ray and it found another lease of life, that's kind of when I came to it and it started to get traction again. It started to be talked about. Well, it was a film I hadn't heard of till I would say five or six years ago at the point when it was re-released in cinemas and it was finally dug out of the Paramount and Universal uh, vaults and things like that and William Freakin came back to it. So I came to it fairly new myself and I hadn't seen The Wages of Fear until just before... We recorded for the 250 myself and I was I'm surprised to say that I think of the two and I think I may have said this on the 250 I think I, I actually like the wages of fear more even though I think Sorcerer is a fantastic movie and in some ways it's better I think it's hard in a way to sort of line them up because even though they're telling the same story in many ways they're not at the same time they're two very different films in very different places at very different times that approach this same idea in two very different ways. So it's a remake, but and it does remake certain aspects of it, but it's not a remake in the sense of the word I think we know we know today. Like when somebody does a remake of A Nightmare on Elm Street or an old horror movie or a, an action film. It, this is different. This has a different context and a different feel to it, I think. Yeah, it's fundamentally, like, I think when we were talking about Waits of Fear, we talked about how it is a very European film. And it's written from a very, or directed from a very European perspective. And again, we'll probably talk about this more when we get into talking about the film in a bit more depth. But, like, the central thesis of the Wages of Fear is that absolutely everything is pointless. There's no meaning to existence. Nothing has any weight or substance. And it can all be taken away from you in an instant, which is very much a European perspective after the Second World War, during the 50s when America and Russia were locked in a Cold War, and where kind of the, the nuclear power that could potentially destroy the planet would be launched from America or from Russia with Europe caught in the crossfire between them. And so you have that sense of nihilism at play. And that's very much not what Sorcerer is. Sorcerer is like a film about how the it borrows the idea that the characters have no control over their fates and no control over their destinies. And the idea of kind of where they are, you know, isn't necessarily where they would choose to be. But it's an American film in the context of believing that there is a reason why they are where they are. It believes in fate. It believes that characters end up maybe not where they want to be, but where they're supposed to be. That the universe has a kind of a poetry or a structure or a rhyme to it. And that gives it a kind of a very different feel, at least to me, compared to Wages of Fear. Does that make life better or worse? <laughs> that that the universe, whether the universe doesn't care in Wages of Fear or whether the universe actually hates you. <laughs> yeah, <in> exactly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is the worst Which is worse. Like, uh, philosophical belief system? Yeah. It is a good question, isn't it? Because I think that these are the kind of two fundamental philosophical differences that you've, you've summed up there, Darren, in the way they approach this material. They're... They're coming at the same kind of idea from two very different angles. This film obviously is the fourth in our series covering the, the year 1977. So obviously throughout the new wave, as we've said before on the podcast, we're going through each year along this continuum. Um, hopefully not one, just for the first time. We're going to hopefully revisit years, but this is our first trawl through 1977 so this is and we've and yeah first episode of this of this second series was star wars you know talking about george lucas's um you know space opera and how that and that is a key film for the new wave you know for how you know it changes american cinema and sorcerer and star wars are do do have an interlink in many ways but i think this is this is a quite a key film for this kind of year this this is this this 1977 is kind of a turning point and i think sorcerer and the way that william friedkin approaches 
this film in itself and the way he adapts Wages of Fear is fundamentally, and he's talked about this in interviews, it's almost fundamentally destined for the kind of failure and you know existential problem that the four characters in this film face <laughs> because he makes this film in a way at the worst possible time he could ever have made it. And in the worst possible way, <laughs> making the worst possible decisions. Like Freakin is Freakin's great because when you watch or listen to Friedkin interviewed about Sorcerer, A, he's like, this is the best film I ever made, which is kind of heartening in a way that no matter like no matter what happened, he never lost faith in it. And eventually the world kind of came around to respecting his opinion on it. I mean, many people would argue it's not as good as The Exorcist or it's not as good as The French Connection. I'm kind of not sure, you know, whether it's this or To Live and Die in L.A. are my favorite Freakin film. Of course, the film that critics derided as Miami Vice is the other contention for Darren's favourite freaking film. Um, but I mean, it is kind of interesting that while he's always argued that it's his favourite film of his own that he's made, he's also been really, really, really candid. Um, that, you know, he was incredibly arrogant in how he made it. And that many of the problems with the film, some of which were out of his control, and we're going to circle back around to talking about Star Wars later on, in that sense of, does the universe hate you and Sorcerer as well, apparently. But I mean, also, in terms of like the choices that he made during production, Freakin has been candid and said, I was arrogant. I had this huge ego. I made terrible, terrible decisions that any sane person would have realized were bad decisions at the time. But I believed that I was untouchable. I believed I was fated to be brilliant. I believed that I was going, you know, I was untouchable. Having won a Best Director Oscar, having been nominated for Best Picture twice. um, I thought I was the golden goose. I thought there was nothing I could do wrong. And then Sorcerer basically brings it all crashing down. And again, that tragedy almost of his own making, that hubris and that arrogance is, is how he frames mm. it. I suppose the interesting thing about Sorcerer is that he he approaches something, you know, he gets to that point where he feels like he's untouchable and he can do anything. And, you know, he talks about how he feels very, like he's losing touch with himself in many ways at this period, like 1975, 1976. I think he says how, you know, he spends his days flying between coasts to buy antique furniture and, you know, mixing with business people and things like this. It feels then he feels like he's 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 losing himself within that hubris. So he decides to go back to a touchstone and a big touchstone for him. And you know, there are two key films, I think, in his mind, mind when he's making this. The first one is The Wages of Fear, obviously. And the second one is Treasure of the Sierra Madre, starring Humphrey Bogart, which is a big influence on the film itself. So he's got these two films in mind and he goes back to the wages of fear, thinking that he wants to do something with this idea, this existential idea of fate and that he's destined for something and that these characters are destined for, you know, at the very, you know, in many ways, purgatory, which is kind of what Paul Veneer is. But, and he describes it in a way as such, so he's in this position where he decides to remake this story and do it in his own way. And it feels like a a, a particularly a particular film that's sort of linked with him as a person. You know, so often you'll get films that are made and they're, they're made for arbitrary reasons. They're made for a bottom line. They're made as part of a continuation of a franchise. They're made for all these different reasons. Freaking came in at the, at the height of his sort of powers in terms of the studios and everything. And he wanted to make a, a, a dour, very sweaty, stripped back, hard boiled film about four men who end up on a, <laughs> in one of the, you know, back end of South America on this really sort of depressing, angsty sort of quest. And it, it's, it feels like it reflects him 
as a filmmaker, particularly yeah. at this point. And I mean, there's, there's even more than that. There's like the fact that he originally envisaged this as just a quiet, small in-between film. You know, he originally planned to make it for a budget of, I think, $2.9 million. And he wanted to make it before he made the movie that he was he was called Devil's Triangle, which is going to be about the Bermuda Triangle, about the planes and ships that had disappeared in there. And he was going to make a film where it was suddenly, oh my God, they're actually being abducted by aliens. Except it turns out Steven Spielberg got there first. And so you have this weird situation where the movie that he kind of wanted, he wanted to make to clear the palette, that he wanted to be like a fresh start, low budget, gritty, back to basics film, ended up becoming this kind of monster behemoth, you know? Well, uh, which could, is- could he not have made Wages of Fear? The, the, the budget, like it starts out, it's like a Bond movie, kind of like Veracruz, Jerusalem, Paris, New Jersey... <laughs> Um, and, and Nic- one of those Nic- four is not like the other. Nic- <laughs> Nicaragua and 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 the all shot on location. All yeah. like actually f- flew crews around the world to actually shoot in Paris, Jerusalem, Nicaragua, and yes, New Jersey, Elizabethtown, um, in order to film those sequences. Every movie about South America makes me think that maybe I should never go to South America because <laughs> they're always so sweaty. Yeah, like I was looking at this and thinking. Is this the sweatiest movie I've ever seen? And then I thought, no, I maybe Papillon is yeah. sweatier than this. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, it, it's got to be up there though. It's got to be up there with sweat. One of the, one of the interesting things about this film is that that there is an alternate sort of universe where it might have been filmed in America because what originally freaking wanted when he came into this film even with you know this like like you said darren this aspiration of cleaning the palette and doing all this he when he came into it he wanted the uh the main character of uh scanlon the new jersey crook who ends up in a car accident and then uh, played by roy schneider who then ends up in porvenir when it all goes wrong he wanted him to be played by steve mcqueen who obviously at that point was you know obviously steve mcqueen at the height of his career and had done some amazing films and steve mcqueen said Sure, I'll, 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 I'll the script, the best script I've ever read, as freaking tells it. But he said, "I'll only do it if you write a part for Ali McGraw, my wife, who he'd met on the getaway, and he'd had an affair on the getaway with Sam Peckinpah's The Getaway, and he'd she'd left Robert Town, the executive, for him, and then they got married, and freaking said, "Well, no, I, I can't. There's no woman character in this. Like the only, the only female character is is Manzon's wife, who's like in one or two scenes." So uh, in Paris, in Paris, exactly. So McQueen says, oh, OK, well, uh, make her an executive producer then. And Freakin says, I'm not giving her just some random title that she can lord over me. You know, no. And he says, OK, right. Well, my third and final condition then is that you shoot the whole film in America because I don't want to be away from her. And and he said, oh, look, I found my locations. You know, I've got my locations. They're all brilliant. They're like, like you say, Andrew, they're all a global travelogue. Um, no. Yeah. And he's, and, and, and was he's, Steve McQueen then like, okay, fourth condition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, the strange thing is that Steve McQueen was in Papillon. Mm, mm. That's true. So he had already done his sweaty South American <laughs> movie. But in fairness, he had also done like more than one driving movie yeah. as well. Yeah. Um, well, it, yeah. Yeah. Much as Freakin has said that Roy, Sch- Roy Scheider was great and he'd come off the back of Jaws and he was, you know, doing well in that sense, 
he wasn't a movie star like McQueen. And I think he regrets it now. He, he said, I should have said yes. I should have just made it happen with McQueen because he said the close-up of Steve McQueen is worth any number of vistas. I mean, I, I, what do you guys think about that? Because I don't know. I, I think he's been... I don't think he's been generous in a way to quite what he manages to get out of these kind of locations and this travelogue and the fact that he's able to he's able to go to what turns out to be the Dominican Republic to film these sequences. You know, if he had given in to McQueen, would it have been worth making this happen in America? Well, I think I think Roy Scheider is worth a lot as well. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah. Well, when, when famously when they showed up to shoot this in, in the Dominican Republic, apparently crowds turned out to see Roy Scheider shouting, the man who killed the shark, the man who killed the shark. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> it's worth it for that alone, really. But he, he, he wouldn't have been able to get the same level of global travelogue and really capture, I think, that sweaty jungle atmosphere in America, much as America's got access to lots of different locations. Or maybe you should, you know, you'll appreciate this, Darren, as a big X-Files fan. Maybe they should have gone to Vancouver. They can do anything there, you know? <laughs> yeah. um, and just sort of spray the cast with kind of water and add some mosquito sound effects in post or something. Um, but I mean- yeah, it's like the, the first four sequences are like taken one, two, three, and four. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like... Uh, don't ever go anywhere because it's terrible and dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> the, the issue with the McQueen thing, though, I think that, well, Freakin is, is quite candid more in terms of selling the film. I think he's looking at the film's box office failure when he talks about McQueen. I think that he maybe has a point in that sense. I think McQueen maybe would have been a bigger sell to audiences at that time. I know Scheider just came off Jaws and he was going to work on Jaws 2 and he was arguably a big box office draw, but I think that maybe McQueen perhaps would have been a more conventional Hollywood movie star. I think it would have affected the film negatively because I think that a large part of why Scheider works so well is because he doesn't feel like a conventional movie star. I mean, he's a very handsome man, but I think it's maybe even like the detail of his long kind of nose, the nose that he has that doesn't have like a dimple in it, gives him a, a kind of a physique that looks a little bit rougher, a little bit more, you know, sort of masculine than, than the conventional sort of movie star, but also a little bit more like somebody you would actually meet in real life, somebody who would actually be hanging around in these dive bars. What's interesting about the McQueen thing, though, it isn't just that he lost McQueen. It's that, like, the absence of McQueen caused a domino effect that basically wiped out his core cast. His original cast was going to be Steve McQueen, Marcello Mastrioni, who is regarded as the greatest Italian actor who ever lived, having worked on movies like The Dolce Vita and stuff like that as well with Federico Fellini. Uh, Lino Ventura, who is regarded as one of the greatest French actors who ever lived, despite the fact he's actually Italian, which is quite impressive. Um, and Amado. And what happened is basically, after McQueen dropped out and he was replaced by Scheider, uh, Ventura said... I'll take second billing to uh, McQueen, but I'm not going to take second billing to Schneider. And basically at that point, Freakin said, fine, screw yourself. Uh, and then Marcello <laughs> Mastrioni uh, dropped out. He was supposed to be playing Nilo, the, the assassin. He dropped out because he was caught in the middle of, I believe, a kind of a separation custody alimony battle that would have prevented him from actually leaving the country to film it as well. So you had this kind of domino effect where what was supposed to be this big kind of who's who of like international stars became the guy from Jaws, Amadoa and two guys, two blokes, yeah. two other yeah. blokes. Am- Amadoa is the guy who looks a lot like Polly Shore. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now that you mention it, I can't unsee yeah. it. Thank you for that, Andy. Yeah. yeah. Only agreed to do the movie because of a mistake. He thought it was Rob Schneider rather than Roy Schneider. <laughs> which is a mistake that a lot of people. In fairness, now I want made. a remake 
a shot-by-shot remake by Friedkin of Sorcerer, filmed now, but with Rob Schneider as Scanlan. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine? But yeah, that is fascinating that it has that effect that ultimately... And maybe this was a bit of a, an, an omen for, for how this film was going to be made and how this was going to go, that he loses the, the cast he wants originally and he ends up with what are actually a fantastic collection of actors yeah. but aren't... Uh, not aren't, really bankable. Not bankable. And the, and the studio was saying... Well, I think he says, you know, he's asked, you know, what did the studio say? And he said, well, they, they didn't really give it because they didn't know... They, they didn't really know the difference. Like, big, foreign stars were not big, you know, draws anyway. So Mastriani wouldn't have necessarily... Ventura wouldn't have necessarily been... Peop- it wouldn't have got Americans on seats either. So, you know, the, the, the one that potentially would have helped would have been McQueen, for sure. That would have got people in. But it doesn't necessarily mean it would have made the film a success. And the reality is, having the actors he has, you know, Bruno, Bruno Kramer as... Um, or Kramer, I don't know how you say his name, but he, as uh, Manzon. Serrano. Serrano, yeah, thank you. <laughs> yeah, because Scanlon ends up as Dominguez, right? Dominguez, and yes. And then you've got Amidou as Kasim. Does he keep his Kasim, name, yeah. I think? And then... No, no he... he... Or does he become... Oh, God. He changes it as well. Is it Mendez or something? You're, you're close. You're close, actually, Andrew, because it's Martinez. So nearly... Okay. Casson ah. becomes Martinez. And the only one who did doesn't... I say did I say Marquez? Marquez is the guy who's killed. Yeah, yes. yeah, he he's is the German. Yeah. So pretty good. I love that like even the German in this called time, Marquez. That's it exactly. I love that like they're so transparently aware of what exactly this town is populated by, like expats and foreigners who just happen to have taken on vaguely Latin sounding surnames <laughs> that they're like, Yeah, get get the German. You know, Marquez. Um, get the Irishman, you know, Domingo, that sort of thing. Get the uh, Palestinian, you know, Martinez. Um, and like, I love that like everybody's so keenly aware of all this. It's so transparently obvious, but they keep referring to one another using these made up names. I mean, again, you have the fact that Scanlon doesn't even learn or doesn't even seem to have any real interest in learning Spanish in order to kind of blend in, in this community in which he finds himself. It's just like, yep, yeah, I have papers that say my name is Dominguez. That's all I need. That'll do, yeah. And then the the, the fourth part of the quartet is uh, Nilo, Nilo, and he's the only one who doesn't change his name, I think. And he's he's played by Francisco Rabal, who was a an actor that Friedkin had seen early in the seventies. I think just before around the time he's filming The Exorcist or before The Exorcist, and was a well known in Spain and Italy, apparently. And there's a great quote from Rabal where he says he was disappointed about the international scope of it because he said, "All my life, I wanted to make a Hollywood movie." And when I finally did, it was filmed in Paris, Israel, Mexico, <laughs> and the Dominican Republic, <laughs> which is great. But he would be disappointed if he went to Hollywood well, as well. Almost certainly. Like, yeah, yeah. Filming- it's like where take me, take me to downtown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, or, what is this? Or filming this on like a backlot. You know, in Hollywood, like in yeah, time yeah. in Hollywood, wouldn't have been fun. Where is the rear projection? <laughs> well, I mean, what, what do we think about the way these characters come together? Because one of the big differences from The Wages of Fear is that with that film, Clouseau throws you into what, it's not the same town, but the, the Porvenir setting. You know, you're there, the characters are already there, you spend an hour in that film getting to know them in that setting before the mission begins. In this case, 
a, it takes a good 25 minutes for them all to get to Porvenir and you have the backstory. You find out that all, where all these four men came from. You find out that Manzon is about to be, he's like a, a very sort of middle class in Paris and he's about to be done for fraud in his father-in-law's company. You've got Qasem, who's a Palestinian uh, in Israel who he's been involved in a bombing. You've got Nilo, who's escaping after having killed someone. And you've got Scanlon, who's been involved in this hit on a, uh, a sort of a gangster's den that's killed a priest. So you've got all of these characters and all their backstories. Does this... Well, I, it, may, it changes the complexion of the start, but does it improve over the Wages of Fear? Or does it? Is it something that is particularly needed in 77, in Sorcery, that, and it wasn't needed necessarily in 53 with The Wages of Fear. Well, that's interesting that you mentioned that because there's a couple of interesting things about that introduction. The first thing is that like those that 17-minute introduction is apparently one of the reasons, one of many, many reasons that American audiences did not really glom to the film. Apparently, they went into the film and you had these sequences and, and they're backloaded so that, you know, it starts in, in Nicaragua, it then goes to, you know, Jerusalem, it then goes to Paris. So you have this block of about 15 minutes where nobody speaks a word of English in the film. And apparently, like, people were walking out of cinemas when they went to see it, thinking that they'd signed up to see a foreign film. And you had cinemas actually putting up posters in the lobby saying, no, this is an English language film. There will just be foreign language dialogue available or occurring with subtitles in the first 16 minutes. That's kind of, again, one of those examples of Friedkin's ego kind of almost kind of getting in the way of kind of commerciality. And again, that statement of the new wave. It's almost the most new wave of movies. In that. <laughs> the, the, the problem was was that that notice was written in Spanish. (laughs) (laughs) For dramatic irony. Um, But in terms of the introductions, actually, I quite like them. I like them for several reasons. First one is that I don't know if they're necessary. I don't know if they're an improvement on The Wages of Fear. I do think they're an important way of differentiating the movie from The Wages of Fear. They make it very clear that what Friedkin is doing is different from what Clouseau was doing. And I think that's kind of important when you're doing something like this, when you're attacking, not attacking, but when you're taking on kind of a classic of cinema to say, I'm doing my own thing and to establish how you're doing your own thing immediately. And the second thing is that they make it very clear, that kind of thing that I talked about, the big difference between The Wages of Fear and Sorcerer, which is The Wages of Fear is a nihilistic movie. It believes that the universe doesn't give a whit about where you where you came from, who you are, what you desire, how competent you are, whether you're brave, whether you're foolish, whether you're optimistic, whether you're cynical, you're all going to end up dead anyway. And one of the things that I think is interesting about Sorcerer is that in this, it's very clear from the start that the universe does care. It's just going to torture you specifically using your own history. Like, the, those sequences all give this wonderful sense of poetic kind of irony to the film, where the universe is this really cruel, sadistic sort of environment. So it all becomes very clear. So to pick an example, Kassam is introduced planting a bomb in Jerusalem that kills civilians. How does Kassam die? In a gigantic explosion. Nico is introduced, sorry, Nilo is introduced murdering somebody, in, you know, murdering a stranger in a Nicaraguan apartment. How does he die? He gets a gunshot wound to the gut. He dies that way. Scanlon is introduced as a driver. He becomes a driver. He ends up driving all the way back to the place at the end of the movie where maybe he dies or maybe he doesn't. We're going to talk about that later on, I suspect. But even things like, say, um, you know, the, the character of Serrano, you know, the sort of the Frenchman. Who, you know, is given this watch and he's he basically has this conversation with his wife where he's talking about like the soldier, the anonymous soldier who with one gesture would remove this woman from the world and did she fire. 
How is he removed from the world? With the firing, with a soldier firing at the wheel of a truck that he's driving, and he's gone immediately. And so you have this kind of sense of wonderful kind of irony where there is a sense of there being a plan or a purpose or a reason. Everything in this film almost happens for a reason. The only problem is the characters are not aware of it. And again, the film repeatedly underscores this. You have sequences where, for example, you know, where they're they're pulled over, where Scanlan and um, Nilo are pulled over. And they're held hostage by these gorillas, and the gorillas are speaking Spanish. And the two characters don't necessarily understand the dialogue that's being spoken, but the subtitles make it very clear to the audience that despite what the, what the gorillas are saying in English about, we'll just take the truck and leave you fine, they're going to murder them in the middle of the road. You have the sequence where Serrano is given his watch back, and we as an audience member know what that watch means, but he turns to Scanlan, Scanlan asks, what is that? And he just gives a wink. There's always this sense of the audience knowing more than the characters do, the audience having a sense of a bigger picture. And even things like like, say, Nilo, where as an audience member, we can infer that Nilo is there to murder Scanlan. He's the assassin who was hired, the international hitman who was brought on to kill Scanlan. But you have this kind of tension that runs through the film where Scanlan isn't sure about that. And Serrano is wondering himself. Serrano is watching Nilo just as much, wondering if Nilo was maybe sent to get rid of him as well. And you always have this sense of running through the film that I really like of there being a plan, but the characters being essentially completely powerless and at its mer- you know at its mercy without fully comprehending it. And I, I think that the opening prologues make that very clear because by giving us a clear start of these stories for these characters it kind of signals that the end is going to in some way kind of circle back around or tie into or make sense in the context of this i think it's that the world cares about you the world cares about where you are and what you're doing and it's coming to get you (laughs) yeah Yeah. it's like final destination but in the new wave context fate as opposed to death well death as well i suppose yeah but fated death it'll be a very appropriate death it will be a death that somehow has been tailored specifically to your needs character flaws desires and life choices you just won't get to appreciate it the only person who will is some sort of vengeful spiteful god who is william friedkin staring down the camera lens which i kind of like as well (laughs) well it tracks as well with what he did why he called this film sorcerer you know in the because obviously one of the two trucks he's called is named Sorcerer, and at the time, a lot of people thought that it was going to be an Exorcist sequel because this was the film he'd done after The Exorcist. And as as he describes it, this, he, he he saw the Sorcerer as an evil wizard. In this case, the evil wizard is fate. It's more a film about fate and about the mystery of fate. The fact that somebody can walk out of their front door and a hurricane can take them away, an earthquake or something falling through the roof or something, and the idea that we don't really have control over our own fate. See, neither our births nor our deaths. It's something that's haunted me since I was intelligent enough to contemplate something like it. So Freakin is is very much approaching this from an an angle of trying to explore the the, the powerlessness of the universe in many ways. The fact that there, you know, he, he said before in similar sort of interviews about how, you know, even people like Jesus and Hitler didn't have any control over how they how they came into the world and how they exited the world and it's an interesting argument because there, there would be people who, who turn around and refuted that you know in terms of actual fate and actual how they control their destiny lots of people obviously would turn around and say well hitler didn't have to murder all those people he didn't have to you know instigate a holocaust he didn't have to do these things is there a difference between the actions the individual actions of the person or the overall sort of nihilistic scope of one's life and one's destiny and i think that's one of the questions that sorcerer asks he puts them in this place this 
Porvenir Purgatory, and then he explores whether or not these these men kind of have any agency over their destiny. And it's quite fascinating concept, really. It is, and kind of I think that there's <clears throat> enough of a difference in how he does it that it's you can see it as kind of an adaptation of Wages of Fear, but it also feels like its own thing, which is kind of a very delicate balance for what is essentially a remake, I think. Yeah, and and it's it's, it's charting its own course there, I suppose. And I suppose the big... Because obviously when they, they, they get to Porvenir and they're in the middle of this situation where it's a similar kind of story in that you've got this town in the back in, in the... It's not named what country it's in, but there are suggestions that there is there has been revolution, that there is kind of potentially like a dictatorship involved. Presumably, it's Nicaragua, no? Is it ever named as Nicaragua though? Because I, I, I mean, but they're always talking about going to Managua, and why would anybody anywhere else want to? <laughs> to, to... To, to, well, like apparently it's very nice. Yeah, has <laughs> some great prostitutes. Apparently, is what my big takeaway from the film is. Yeah. Um, to be fair to Kassam, Kassam wants to go to Argentina. I think as well. So it is sort of like there's a sense of it being a nexus point almost. There's a sense of where this is is between places because even Nilo when he lands is like I'm in transit, you know. And even like I mean, I think that you know even Serrano kind of sees this as a stopping off point to get somewhere else down the line as well. And it's kind of interesting. That's again another sense of contrast between this and the Wages of Fear, where in the Wages of Fear there's a sense of characters being stuck there forever and like knowing that they're stuck there. And there's a sense here almost of characters. You know, we mentioned that Joe was the only character in Wages of Fear who seemed to believe that he could actually get somewhere that wasn't the village that he was in. Here, however, there's a sense of characters at least having a plan to go somewhere having you know you have Kassam saving up his wages you have Serrano pawning his watch for example and obviously that's not enough to get them out of there but there's a sense that they know where they want to go it isn't just that they don't want to be here it's that they literally they want to be somewhere else you know except for Scanlan who's like okay fine I, I guess I'm here but the rest <laughs> of them seem to be like we're, we're gonna move on we're moving places we are in transit, as uh, you know, as Nilo tells the uh, customs officer. I guess Scanlon is the guy who's there because he's quite good at driving, <laughs> <laughs> which makes sense. Actually, that's exactly where he's yeah. meant to be. Yeah. Um, like yeah. again, that's the like, stage. Like the, it's I, I love I love the moment where kind of this movie's version of O'Reilly uh, uh, looks at him and he's like Teamster, and he says Greyhounds. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, um, no, I, 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 I drove uh, Greyhound buses, and at, somehow uh, ended up here. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it, he, he, he has a lot of great lines like that, and I think Roy Scheider is very good at those sorts of lines. Like, like the kind of everyman, but sort of hard boiled sort of performance that he that he gives that he did that he did so well in. Um, in Jaws. He's a lot more Bogart than McQueen would have been. You know, McQueen being oh, 100%. that, you know, glossy sort of movie star. As good an actor as he was, you know, he is a, that matinee idol kind of look. Whereas, you know, yeah, Scheider yeah. looks like a piece of granite. You know, it's, it's somebody sawed off, sort of face off. You know, much more in the line of the Fred C. Dobbs character in Treasure of the Sierra Madre that freaking... Who he very much evokes here with his quarter shares, quarter shares, 20 yeah. grand, 20 grand. Yeah. Yeah, that yeah, exactly. And I think that was definitely in his mind's in his mind's eye with these characters. I suppose as well with these characters, what you you as you described that there, Darren, they they aren't necessarily as as aware of their helplessness as the characters in 
the wages of fear were. Like you say, they Joe being the the uh, you know, the outlier there, but they seem to realise they weren't going to get out of this. Whereas Serrano, particularly, I think feels like he is going to get back to his wife you know and this this is this is a a journey towards that without realizing that it's just it's we know that that's not necessarily going to happen and i think that's it makes for a a film that you are aware of that on one level while watching it but at the same time it's not a barrier because one of one of the things i think that maybe alienated audiences at the time and why it's found a resurgence nowadays is that they're, the big difference from Wages of Fear is that in Wages of Fear, they worked hard to build up a level of camaraderie, whether it was between Mario and Joe or Mario and Luigi. Yes, Mario and Luigi. We've said that on, on the 250. Yes, Mario Brothers. But they, they built up a sense of camaraderie. Google them, by the way. Characters. If you haven't seen the movie, Google Mario and Luigi yeah. Wages of Fear and tell me <laughs> that it's a coincidence. It can't be. It, we've said this on your podcast. It, I refuse to believe that Nintendo did not <laughs> take it from the Wages of Fear. But there is that camaraderie, absolutely, in that film. And it's not here in Sorcerer. Freaking and screenwriter Waylon Green, whose screenplay appears to have been fairly ad- adapted as he wrote it, really. There's very few changes, it looks like, particularly as you look at the screenplay. They wrote characters who weren't going to have that bonding experience in quite the same way. That too, I think, is a big, a big difference. And I think it's it's interesting how that exists for Sorcerer and it doesn't exist for The Wages of Fear, considering when they were made and who they were made by, in a way. And I find that that's that's a particularly the particular standout thing for me. To not necessarily as I say standout as a great thing, but it makes Sorcerer a very different film. And again, I think that's maybe something that's tied to this idea of kind of fate as well, because I think that in Wages of Fear, you kind of justify the camaraderie by having this hour that you spend with this really bizarre love triangle between Mario, Luigi and Joe, for example, you know? And you have this sense of kind of like them being drawn together as three people who know each other and are involved with one another and therefore have a history with another. And even Bimba, who kind of has a relationship with everybody around the space that he's in, but he's kind of the ringer of the four. And one of the things that I find interesting about Sorcerer when you watch it is that the only real relationship that exists between the four drivers who were originally picked is the relationship between between Martinez and uh, Marquez, between Kassam and the German. They're the only two characters that you see have like an actual friendly conversation with one another because they're both talking about getting out together. And indeed, after Nilo murders uh, Marquez, you have Kassam basically try to kill him, implying that Kassam actually cares about another human being, which is quite striking in the world of Sorcerer. Whereas on the other hand, what you have is you have these sequences where the characters are kind of drawn together without even realizing it. So, for example, when Scanlan's at the bar and he bumps into Serrano and he buys Serrano the drink, but the guards are like, like, are you his friend? No. But you have Kassam kind of wandering into the conversation there as well in the background. You have Nilo wandering through the center of the village. And he just happens to be watched by Serrano, who is in turn being watched by Scanlan, just as Kassam comes out of one of the little shops chewing a toothpick. There's a sense of like, again, that's this idea of fate, where there's a sense that these four characters were always going to end up together, even if they didn't realize it. And I think that I think it's kind of it. It serves to differentiate the two films and I understand that, you know, maybe it, it leads to a coldness because you don't have that history going into the trucks that you have with Wages of Fear. But I think it fits with what Sorcerer is doing. I think it makes sense in terms of kind of what Sorcerer is about, you know? 
Yeah, I, I think I think it does, and I think it would have been a different kind of film. And maybe you know, I mean, it's, it, I don't know if it would have fitted William Friedkin's style particularly. And I think I think there is a certain you know stripped back aesthetic that he appreciates with the way that sorcery is presented in terms of characters and in terms of exploring the ideas more than the characters. And that, but I think that's one of the great things about sorcery, and it does have both. It does have people you're invested in. But it is in a different. It's in a different way. It's in a different context, and it is more potentially about the exploration of the ideas and the journey that they go on. And I mean, I I, I don't know about you, but I found he's talked about how the geopolitics of Sorcerer influences the film. But I found it less overt in this film than in The Wages of Fear. Because in The Wages of Fear, you have the character of O'Brien, who is the American executive in the oil company in in the village. And there's a, there's a there's much more of a of an overt sort of political bent behind the exploitation of these South American workers and these you know um, these ramshackle guys from all, uh, from everywhere. Whereas in this, the geopolitics is more subtle. It's it's it for me. It's less about the you know the events going on beyond you know waves of fear. Obviously, takes place towards the beginning of the Cold War, and you know, in 1953, when you've got the the overarching, we talked about this in the 250, but the overarching threat of the bomb and, you know, nu- nuclear uh, mutually assured destruction and things like that. And in 1977, the world is a different, it's still there, but it's a different, in a different context. And Friedkin's talked about how he saw Sorcerer as being about how countries distilled in microcosm in these characters have to work together, otherwise the world's going to destroy itself. But it's definitely something that is more subtext for me um, and again it's it's worth kind of noting in that context that this was a movie that was made by paramount and i don't know if you've kind of talked about it on the new wave before the kind of the odd relationship that you had with what was happening at the studios at the same time as what was happening with the directors where like you had the directors who were running off doing all these crazy things and being all given all this crazy money because they had previously managed to earn returns on it i mean freaking directed the third biggest movie of all time to that point which was the exorcist but like you have this idea or the godfather being the biggest movie it's year so let's give francis ford coppola all the money that that he wants to run off to you know vietnam or cambodia in order to shoot apocalypse now and you have like freakins even talked about this where like the only thing that he would get from studios the only note that he would get would be budget keep the budget manageable and you can do whatever you want in terms of creative freedom but it's notable that uh Paramount itself was actually owned by Gulf and Western, uh, which is the gigantic oil company. And the reason why they shot in the Dominican Republic is because the man who bought Paramount in 1966, and Andrew will appreciate this, the man who installed Robert Evans um, as sort of the the chief executive uh, at Paramount, you bet your ass he did, um, was Charles (laughs) Bloodhorn, who was basically the head of Gulf and Western. And he actually apparently like unofficially owned large portions of the Dominican Republic. And part of the reason why Sorcerer decided to film in the Dominican Republic was because Bloodhorn himself had said, go on, we'll, we'll sort you out, we'll keep it even, we'll keep it fair. You know, we'll sort of we'll make sure that we'll keep it affordable, you can do whatever you want there, basically. You can be God. Um, you can do whatever you want and get away with it. I mean, Bloodhorn is the guy who famously at one point decided on Thanksgiving that he wanted to have a party on New Year's Eve at a disco only to discover that there was no disco. So he had one built in the space of the month and a half between him deciding it and the kind of end of year party happening in the in the Dominican Republic. And you can kind of see that little tension there where there's a sense of you wonder if maybe Paramount kind of, you know, while they wouldn't have pushed back too much on content, where there's a sense of how much can you get away with making this a movie about an evil oil company 
while filming for a studio that is owned by an evil oil company. And again, Freakins actually talked about some of the subversive stuff that he did, where in that sequence where they talk about kind of the terrorist bombing, and again, the, the, the it's notable in terms of this theme of fate, that like in Wages of Fear, the oil well blows up just because of an accident. It's just a trick of, you know, it's chance. Could have happened anyway. It was just bad luck. Whereas here, it's explicitly an act of sabotage. It's an act of terrorism. It's a conscious choice that somebody made to blow it up. Uh, but in that conversation where the equivalent of the O'Brien character, the, the American character who basically has to manage this situation, goes to meet his boss and they have the conversation about the telegram from management about how, you know, you need to deal with this because we need to get supply out quickly. Uh, in the background of the shot, there's a framed picture of the board of directors of this fictional oil company. And apparently... That is a picture of the Gulf and Western executives. Apparently, Friedkin literally went to their annual report for 1977, tore out the picture and had it framed. And apparently that was the one thing that Bloodhorn, uh, to, to quote, I believe it's Waylon Green, the writer, had a shit hemorrhage over <laughs> uh, when it came to the film. Bloodhorn, if he hasn't come up already on the new wave, he will, because he's a fascinating character in terms of how he influences a lot of the films in this period of cinema. And I think... The, the sort of edict that, you know, he wanted Freakin to film this in the Dominican Republic served served Freakin well in, a, in that sense, even though there was that, was that subversion and that there is that hypocrisy inbuilt in sort of the production behind this. You know, there is, there is no way that Freakin would have quite managed to pull off some of the sequences that you get in Sorcerer that have made it so infamous and so legendary without that kind of setting potentially you know particularly yeah, the rope launch yeah, yeah well exactly and particularly the rope bridge sequence which is probably the the most famous part of sorcerer where the two trucks have to get across uh this rickety rope bridge almost at the, the bottom of a river um just above the the the, the line of a river uh, in the most horrendous storm conditions ever before we move on from bloodhorn it's worth noting by the way that like again in the sense of sorcerer being a movie about how the universe is out to screw you and a sense of Sorcerer being a movie about how the universe is out to screw Sorcerer. It's worth noting that the week, the literal week that Sorcerer was released, the New York Times ran a series of exposés about Gulf and Westerns, uh, human rights violations, money embezzlement, uh, and various other shady practices, including coverage of their horrible actions that they were doing in the Dominican Republic as well, just in terms of perfect kind of timing and synchronicity between the film and everything else happening in the world. <laughs> yeah, and had that not come out, things might have gone a bit better, you know, in some ways for the film. But the locations, certainly, in terms of the actual filmmaking, help. And, I mean, that rope bridge sequence is is astonishing, in that, that it was all done, practically. It was done with high tensile sort of wires hidden in the rope bridge, and, you know, the fact that there were, there were stories about how you know, Freakin had, had gone found two separate river locations for to film this, and then the riverbeds dried up in two separate locations, hundreds of miles away. I think one of them was then in Mexico where they filmed this. And, you know, the the, the again, fate conspiring against Sorcerer. And you know, and that unbelievable, you know, uh attempt to sort of sabotage the film in some senses. But he still managed to get this amazing sequence out of it. And I think this it, it is one of those sequences, I think, a lot for years, a lot of people didn't really know existed. And then when you watch it, it's pretty astonishing stuff. It is incredible to learn how, how, how much of that was kind of, I suppose it had to be practical. They lost yeah. two trucks doing it. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he, he said, apparently, that, it, that he, would have, he would have made it with 
he's, he's, he's been quite funny in that, you know, he said, if you made that today, you would use CG, you know, you would use effects. And he said, if I made it today, I'd use effects. <laughs> it would make it so much easier. But then at the same time, something would have been lost because you can't replicate that feeling of just pure, you know, this... Right, exactly. And when you watch that film, it's when you watch it, it's nerve shredding in a different way to sequences in the Wage of Fear. I suppose the the equivalent in the Wages of Fear might be something along the lines of the the truck speeding up to the the the, the back of the other truck, and you think they're going to they're going to collide. But this takes that sort of suspense to an entirely different level, I think. And again, like it's one of those things where the film is almost kind of a metaphor for itself, for the hubris, and kind of almost like arrogance you would call it but like arrogance where that arrogance matches ability where like Friedkin does that sequence and it's breathtaking and Nilo and Scanlan get across the bridge and you're like whoo whoo that was intense and what does Friedkin do he's like I'm gonna do it again like literally (laughs) the next action sequence is him doing that same sequence again uh, but with Serrano and with Kassam and it's it's just as long and it's just as visceral it's arguably even more visceral because he he ramps up the intensity but it's one of those great examples of like the film's almost sense of indulgence where you can imagine that when the studio executives were sending notes they're like isn't it enough to see him cross the bridge once do we need to see it twice immediately one after the other for the solid 12 minutes you know 20% of the movie kind of or not 20% 10% of the movie um have the, spent on this sequence And again, it gets to that thing, and again, even thematically it kind of works as well, because it's notable that to get to that sequence, to get that sequence where they're crossing the bridge, you have the moment where the two trucks come to a fork in the road in the middle of the jungle, where the sign is broken, and they're trying to figure out which road to take. And Serrano says, we follow the map and we take the low road, uh, because that's what it says on the map. And Scanlan says, no, you're crazy. In this weather, the low road is going to turn into a swamp. The high road is the one that we take. And then you see Scanlan drive off on the high road and he comes to the bridge. He's like, no, this isn't supposed to be here. This isn't where I'm meant to be. This isn't what's supposed to be happening. And he goes across it. And then you have Serrano, who chose the entirely different direction, who followed the path that was on the map entirely. And where does he end up? Right back at that bridge. And there's a sense again of like, that is where the universe has decided that he's going to be. And like what I find fascinating about that sequence, um, and this is kind of interesting because it ties into something you mentioned earlier, which is the title Sorcerer, the fact that Freakin was coming off The Exorcist, and the fact that and Andrew and I have discussed The Exorcist on the 250, um, and it's, it's you know, it was a massive cultural phenomenon. And, and one the of the Exorcist big... too. <laughs> which was also a massive <laughs> cultural phenomenon. Yeah, no, can't forget Yes, that. let's not forget that. No. But yeah, somehow had an even more trouble production than Sorcerer, somehow. But the thing about Sorcerer is that, like, you have that sequence where, like, again, there's an argument that people wanted a movie that was like The Exorcist and went into it expecting, with a title called Sorcerer. And let's be frank, the marketing as well, because, like, the first image that you see is a statue that looks like a sculpt of Pazuzu. And again, you see it later on, for example, when Serrano's driving the truck, the camera moves past a kind of a sculpture that's engraved on the side of a mountain, and it looks like Pazuzu. And even that Tangerine Dream score occasionally has that sound almost of kind of like a coral rising on it. And like, this is going to be slightly controversial, mildly hot take, I guess, a lukewarm take, let's call it a lukewarm take. Like, 
When I talk about The Exorcist, I like The Exorcist a lot. I think it's a really great social document of the 70s. I think, like, it's a capsule. Like, it really is a snapshot of what America was terrified of in a cultural sense. These fears of modernity and kind of, like, time moving on and stuff. And kind of the idea of single parents and the breakdown of the nuclear family and all these anxieties that were bubbling through American consciousness. But it's not necessarily a scary film in an immediate visceral sense. Like... And perhaps a large part of that is because so much that's been recycled and filtered through pop culture that by the time I came to it, I was already familiar with all the scares. Sorcerer is terrifying. And again, it's this weird thing where even though it's not a direct sequel to The Exorcist, it feels like it belongs alongside as a companion piece to The Exorcist because it feels like a story about how the universe is, you know, malignant. Sorry, it's, it's you know, it's kind of monstrous. It's evil. And again, you, you have that sequence when they're crossing the bridge where when Serrano and Kasam are going across um, and basically, you know, after Kasam has dropped in the water and pulled himself up, you have a tree come smashing into the side of the truck. <laughs> yeah. Almost like impaling. And again, part of this is just retrospectively because you're looking at, say, you know, um, after Poltergeist where you have the tree coming through the window and that being horrifying. And so retroactively, part of me is like, maybe this is horror film. Although I do also wonder that Steven Spielberg was a massive fan of, of Sorcerer. He was spotted on several film sets afterwards wearing a Sorcerer t-shirt and talked about how much he loved the film. And part of me wonders if maybe you could argue that uh, perhaps some of the Poltergeist stuff was maybe inspired by it. But you have this scare cord. You have this scare cord on the soundtrack as this tree comes out of nowhere and impales Kasam and almost kind of smothers Serrano. And it's very much a moment in which it feels like the world is actively alive and trying to murder these characters with what amounts to its own bare hands. And it's a striking scene. It's one of the most horrifying, tense, kind of nauseating, unsettling kind of skin crawling scenes that I've seen in a very long time. And it feels, it does feel like it belongs in a horror movie. It feels as much a horror movie beat as kind of Linda Blair floating off the bed in The Exorcist, I would argue. And it's, it's, it's as uh, Werner Herzog says, um, there is no harmony in the universe. <laughs> um, but there is a scare chord. And that, and that nature is trying to extinguish your life. Yes, um, Andrew. Can I it's... can I request you you only speak in that accent for the rest of this podcast now? <laughs> Even when you're just talking about anything, you do the Hutsuk, <laughs> the Hutsuk voice all the way. <laughs> it's a very relatable movie. <laughs> But surely Herzog would bit... would appreciate Sorcerer. You know, it's the sort of film you could imagine so. him liking, isn't it? Well, I mean, like Andrew pointed out last week when we talked about the wages of fear. If anything, Werner Herzog could emphasize with an experience, with like a production that went to South America and turned into a nightmare, uh, where it seemed like everybody involved was practically plotting to murder everybody else involved. Friedkin apparently became a monster while he was making this. He would fire like large members of the cast and cr- not members of the cast. He'd fire members of the crew. Scheider joked that I was the only person he couldn't fire. Um, so I was the one who had to say, stop firing people because I feel bad saying goodbye to them at the airport. But he fired, apparently he fired his cinematographer because the cinematographer tried to use lighting in the jungle. God forbid. Um, he apparently fired the head of the Teamsters and the entire Teamster union left the production in the middle of filming. It Again, it's it's a sense of like monstrous ego. There's a sense of like, I am a director and nature will bow down before me, which kind of almost fits with the kind of the movie being about how, no, 
No, nature will not bow down before you. Nature will shred you. Are they all in purgatory? I wonder if they're actually in hell. Part of me, like, again, part of me wonders if that's the difference between this and Wages of Fear. Where Wages of Fear is about them being in purgatory. But here in this movie, particularly with the introduction, where you have this sense of what everybody's done, and everybody has done something genuinely horrible. Like, I don't think Mario has murdered anybody, you know, in Wages of Fear. I don't think Luigi has murdered anybody in Wages of Fear. But it's very clear that everybody in this film has an original sin that they're running from. And there's a sense of, like, this being almost torment for that. So, like, I kind of, like, and again, you have that wonderful shot, that recurring shot of the bars and the kind of the cage that's holding them as well. And again, it does feel it's uh, Andrew just, you know, you asked, is this the sweatiest movie ever? And maybe that's why I think of hell, because I don't think of purgatory being kind of sweaty and kind of like smelly in the way that I imagine hell being a lot like this movie, the kind of green inferno almost sort of aspect of it, perhaps. Uh, I I, fi- I mean, uh, freaking, I think has sort of suggested that he was going for a purgatory, but I think I think you're right. I think it is much more of a sort of hellscape and they they all they like you say that their, their sins are all involving death they might not all have directly killed people some of them have like but some of them like you know scanlan is in that accident and the car kills most of the people around him you've got manzon whose uh, partner he's bro- i think his brother-in-law shoots himself in the head you know to prevent to avoid you know this fraud that's going to bring them down so he's in in many ways responsible for for that guy's death without pulling the trigger so that you know they're they're all they're all running away from from those from those deaths in many ways and they're, they're and in... they all run away from their family as well they yeah. all very clearly abandon people like Kasam abandons his brother for example or you know uh, Serrano runs away from his wife for example and even Scanlan you know even though Scanlan is told they're gone they're gone um he still runs away from those bodies of the people that he was you know close to and you know close enough to rob a church with yeah but i'm 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 really interested in this idea of freaking almost not obeying those those natural rules of the universe you know refusing to bend to your will and 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 how it sort of tracks with a recurring story in this period and the one one we we will if we haven't already on the new wave will be talking about in time, particularly when we do Apocalypse Now and Coppola in that film. But what is it about this era, particularly, and what is it about how, and we'll we'll come to Star Wars in a minute, but about how that changes the landscape that sort of brought this crashing down on these kind of directors? Because Freakin is a classic example of that director who, you know, got to the top of the mountain and then these hubris got the better of him and it all came crumbling down. You know, what is it about them trying to push the limits of what they can do in terms of you know, even even danger. You know, freaking talked about how some of the things they did on this, even though they're not as dangerous as maybe some of the you know pre-sound era stunts that people like Buster Keaton would do. They are, there was danger involved. There were things that these days studios would go, "You're not going within a mile of that." What are you talking about? Yeah. I'm not sure it's safer than what Buster Keaton did. It's kind of like a hugely ringing well, endorsement of it. <laughs> exactly. It's like, well, our child labor conditions are awful, but they're not Victorian workhouses. Um, and it, it's kind of it when you think about that. Like I think one of the reasons why that is is, is again something we kind of touched on. We talked about Bloodhorn. We talked about Gulf and Western, where like in the seventies and in late sixties, you had that weird combination of things that you know never happened again. Uh, perhaps because it happened once and that was enough. Where you had two things: you had 
this huge pool of money and this idea of kind of conglomerates coming in and these bottomless pits of money that they could provide and invest and they could treat movies as investments and the idea of people who are used to looking at balance sheets and trading on risk basically handing money off and handing money over the table right which again is kind of what happened with Bloodhorn and with Gulf and Western and Paramount and stuff like that so that's why the money was there in the first place and the other side of that equation is that you had them handing the money to creative types to auteurs to these kind of pups who'd come up watching european cinema and who kind of developed their own thing were pushing the envelope out and who didn't think in the same way that people who were allocating risk or treating as an investment strategy were so like when the studio gives friedkin 20 million dollars to go and make sorcerer um, in south america it assumes that friedkin is going to do exactly what it did the previous two times it gave him a large budget which is go off and make the french connection or go off and make the exorcist both of which will win massive awards and become huge box office hits in their own right however friedkin on the other hand from his part of experience goes well those were great they've given me more money i should do whatever the hell i want to do and i think that like the new Hollywood kind of bubble basically is a result of that kind of reaching critical mass, the point at which you have those two elements kind of pulling against each other, where there's enough money invested, but then there's also enough ego involved that like basically it capsizes spectacularly, and you end up with the money people never being as trusting of the creative types as they were up to that point. Because again, if you look at the end of the New Hollywood era, and again, this is like 1977, we're only at the start of this, really. You're going to be talking about this through 1980 with Heaven's Gate, for example. Uh, But you have situations where you have directors who have made massive financial returns on on earlier films. So like Martin Scorsese with New York, New York, uh, Friedkin doing Sorcerer, and obviously uh, Michael Cimino uh, doing Heaven's Gate. But like those three films from those three, inverted commas, sure thing directors, all backfiring spectacularly means that, you know, the kids no longer get to play unattended. They no longer get to play without adult supervision involved. And then obviously you have the emergence of films like Jaws and films like Star Wars, which are much more manageable, much more sustainable. They don't involve the same, you know, Spielberg and Lucas are great. I really love them. I think they're spectacular directors and they've got a very clear sensibility. But they never had the same level of... And again, this feels really mean to Spielberg and Lucas, but they never had the same level of quite unchecked, I'm going to do whatever the hell I want, that you got from Scorsese at his peak, that you got from Samino at his peak, that you got from Friedkin at his peak. I think I've, I've said before on the podcast how, how, how strange it is that Dawson and Dawson's Creek, that his favorite director is, is Spielberg. But and it, it kind of, if for that reason, it seems like such a kind of a... Uh, like as great as Spielberg is and everything, it's yeah, it's it, 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 too much of a kind of a be a, a favorite director. You would expect it to be kind of, you know, a bit more. It's like slightly more esoteric or something. Yeah, but they're they they rein it in. I mean, it's also worth noting that like of those, well, Lucas doesn't. <laughs> but, <laughs> um, like the the key to to to, to Lucas is is often kind of getting other people to to direct his movies or, or, yeah. or kind of make them better filter his um, vision yeah 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 like he, even even with the first star wars movie the kind of the amount that was kind of saved I, and I think we spoke about it yeah yeah, yeah exactly 
Um, and I mean, the thing about Spielberg and, and Lucas actually is that like Spielberg and Lucas as compared to say De Palma or Scorsese um, or even like Friedkin is that they were very money minded as well. And again, you you read, for example, um, The Men Who Would Be King, which is the really great history of DreamWorks. And that goes into how much of Spielberg was kind of is is focused on money, like in terms of like being financially secure. For Spielberg, being financially secure is very, very important to him. And that reflects the way in which he films. Again, you know, all those stories that you hear from the Jaws set where when something broke, he would work around it rather than going to the studio for more money, for example. And even with Lucas, where Lucas was similarly kind of financially cognizant in a way that maybe some of his contemporaries weren't where obviously with the fox deal he kind of held on to the merchandising rights and found a way to use that to make enough money that he could go off and make his films independently and still turn a profit on them and kind of earn massive amounts of money that made him financially secure and i think that like in the new hollywood era you didn't not all of the directors working like that were as kind of cognizant. And again, like if you've read Peter Biskind's uh, Easy Rider's Raging Bull, which is a fantastic history of this kind of snapshot or, or moment in time, it argues that like one of the key moments or one of the key recurring motifs in this idea of kind of ego imploding with these big directors is directors firing line producers and kind of directors working without producers to keep them in check without, and those producers serve the important function of managing budget and allocations and resources. And so prevent things like massive budget overruns, prevent things like unnecessary reshoots and kind of manage the relationship with the studio. And when those go out the window, you see budgets kind of spiral out of control. You see films becoming kind of less accessible and more esoteric. I think that those kind of competing impulses then lead to what is effectively a gigantic implosion. Because it's worth noting, this was a massive bomb. This made only something like $5 million in the States in initial release, and only $9 million worldwide, uh, which on a budget of $20 million, uh, and I suspect possibly more, is peanuts. And and, and I suspect that you, and and I, I say this as somebody who thinks what George Lucas conceived of and necess- you know not without necessarily being a, a great director as such but what he conceived of and the world building he did was fantastic and Spielberg is possibly one of the greatest directors who ever lived I say that saying that I I don't know if either of them would have been able to pull off so, quite some of the things you see in Sorcerer particularly how freaking manages at the end to update the, one, of, one of the best moments, the moment that actually made me gasp in The Wages of Fear, which is where Joe's, um, light, and I mentioned this in the 250, but where he's about to light a cigarette and the, and the uh, it, it blows out of his hand from the reaction from the explosion of the first truck, which you don't see. In this film, you do see it. And it's, it's it, I think it's even better because it's so sudden. You know, you feel like it's that, it's that cruelty of this in that Serrano, Manzon, has almost got there. You know, he's, he's he's talking about his wife. He's looking at the watch, which says um, 10 years of, of the beginning of forever or something like that. And he's talking about the time in Paris and it suddenly the tire blows, the, the truck goes over the edge, it blows up and it happens in a matter of seconds. And it's so sudden that it just knocks you for six completely in such a cruel way. It's- it's great that they're doing the kind of um, have you got a girl at home? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's also it's also the first time you see them kind of bond. I think it's it is you know it's just before they both die. <laughs> Does it that... feel a bit perfunctory though? <laughs> like 
that that it, it's kind of never happened up until that moment. Moment, it's like, oh, hold on, they're about to die. Let's give them uh, like a bit that more humanity. Maybe. Yeah. Well, same thing happens with Bimba and Luigi as well. To be fair, yeah. Oh, absolutely. But exactly. Maybe that's the point, though. That that's exactly why it's so cruel because there is that flicker of that human connection between these men, and it's over. In in you know, like it's almost like fate's going. No, 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 no. <laughs> this isn't how it works. You're gone. It hits you like a punch. It's it's the punch before you get yeah. to the, you know, the the end, the 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 sort of semi cathartic end of of Dominguez Scanlon finally getting to the uh, the refinery with carrying the box of dynamite as well. <laughs> That's what gets me. He's like just stump shambling into that place with this box of dynamite. It's it's an incredible visual when he just collapses, similar to Mario. You're very similar sort of scenes to Mario in The Wages of Fear, and he just collapses, exhausted. I mean, but Scanlan doesn't pause to light a cigarette. Well, well, no, no, yeah. And that film, obviously... <laughs> this is not a European the, film. Yeah. The Wages of Fear ends in a different manner. The Wages of Fear has that, you know, almost tragicomic, you know, ironic, jokey punch of Mario plunging to his death, Finn, as we talked about in that podcast. This one ends on a more ambiguous note with a flicker of hope. And I think that's what's interesting about Sorcerer in that it sort of, it hits you like a, like a punches you in the throat with the, the way those characters die and you see them die. But then it ends with the possibility of Scanlan, Scanlan's salvation, even if the ambiguity of whether or not he dies leaves you uncertain. And I think that's, I think that's one of the great things about how this ends. Does it end better? I mean, is this a better ending to this story than The Wages of Fear gave us? I mean, it doesn't have the Blue Danube uh, playing as all, <laughs> as this unfolds. So I think it's that that's, definitely that's it's definitely more ambiguous. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, yeah. There, there's no moment where Scanlon's corpse is kind of dragged out. Yeah. I suppose that that happened to Homer Simpson. What what happened to Mario? <laughs> yeah. and, and he was fine. <laughs> We need, we, need a, a, we need a Simpsons remake of Sorcerer, I think, as well. <laughs> that, be good. Well, I mean, they, they do that Mr. Plow, the, the sequence in Mr. Plow where Homer's crossing the bridge. Isn't there a sequence in Mr. Oh, Plow that's oh, Homer that? crossing a, oh, okay. a kind of a rickety wooden bridge uh, in the snow plow? Um, so I think, I think there is something there. I think that... Yeah. I'm not surprised um, they've but, done everything, haven't they, really, over the years? In fact, if, if you look at the kind of episode guides, like every single one has, like it gives... You know, it'll it'll give the 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 joke that's on the blackboard, and they'll give like the 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 the, the cash register, and yeah, they'll also give all of the the uh, references that are made to movies that you just wouldn't know. I need to go and find that one. Cause, <laughs> yeah, because you just take all these kids from Harvard. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to write uh, uh, for the Simpsons like yeah, yeah. a primetime anime TV show of course there's going to be reference to that <laughs> what's interesting though is you know the because the film ends with the sequence where his buddy who helped him get out of the United States turns up in a taxi with the gangster who's working for you know who's working for the gangster whose brother he shot you know one of the one of the, the robbers kind of shot in the church as they walk into the bar there's the sound effect and it sounds like a muffled gunshot it is not actually a muffled gunshot. Uh, Freakin actually used a backfiring truck in order to keep it deliberately ambiguous. Ambiguous. So there's, you know, it's not even clear that there was a gunshot when those two men entered the the bar, which I find kind of interesting as well in terms of leaving things open to the audience to decide how they end or if they end or kind of what happened. And I, I'm not sure if it is better or worse than Wages of Fear. Again, I think it's something that's different. I think it speaks to how this film is different. 
I kind of do suspect the universe is not a kind place. I suspect Scanlan is probably not going to get a happily ever after. But I kind of admire the film's kind of willful ambiguity and kind of leaving that ending open and being like, you, audience member, who has been watching this for the past two hours, you get to decide what happens. You can have a happy ending or you can have a sad ending. Which do you think befits this more? <laughs> it's not a difficult question, is really, that, is it? <laughs> is that bad, though? As in, is it an application, is it? Is it a cheat? Yeah, yeah. Like, like, like because in Wages of Fear, it felt clear from, like, immediately, this is going to end badly for everyone. And, then, and, that, and that it wouldn't be right if any of them were, were, were able to in, enjoy any kind of redemption or happiness that that would kind of spoil the movie. Does that, does, 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 does the ambiguity spoil this? Well, I, I, I think it, it kind of might again be the point in that there are points in this film, like we talked about with Kassam and uh, Serrano, just about starting to find a camaraderie and they die. Again, in this, I feel like he doesn't come out of there alive. My, my, the way I read this is that he's, he dies or something happens to him. And that, you know, Friedkin has said that he he put in the, the whole idea of the, the letter that Manzon would have written to his wife that, you know, Scanlon in theory could go to Paris and you'd give her. And Friedkin even suggested that maybe he'd end up with Manzon's wife. He's like, well, you never know. She's an attractive woman. You know, and it's a bit like, well... That... Filmmaking in the 70s. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's probably quite unlikely. And for me, it's that it is a little bit of that let suggestion of... Don't for one minute think that this is going to turn out well because it won't. If 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 that if that's the message that Freakin I think was going to give, you would have seen you he would you would have faded out on Roy Scheider and the, the the woman dancing to the music and that would have been it. Whereas having that extra little bit of those two guys turning up and leaving it open for me it's, it it doesn't leave it open for me it's he's dead or he's going he's going home in a body bag you know and that's that's the cruel we don't have to see that for me in order to know that that's just the universe contracting that they're all getting they're not getting yeah. out of this place alive None of yeah them, i i, I certainly know? didn't but, think I mean, that he's but it dead. is ambiguous um watching it yeah, yeah did, I did. Did, um i only kind of thought of it as ambiguous when darren was saying it. yeah well no well, no, I mean, no it, it is ambiguous no it is though i mean I, i'm that's my reading of it it is ambiguous there is there is every possibility he does get out of there so I'm certainly not saying that's definitive, you know? It's also worth noting, by the way, that the film is very clear that those moments of happiness and potential hope only exist so that they can be quashed as well. So you have that sequence where, for example, you know, Nilo and Scanlan are driving through that wonderful, eerie kind of, it's that triple exposure sequence just before he gets the kind of flaming um, derelict oil well, the flaming sort of oil well, where they're driving through. It's I think it's Salt Flats in Mexico, uh, or New Mexico, sorry, is where they actually shot those. Ironically, they could have had Steve McQueen show up for that sequence if they wanted. Uh, but they basically, uh, the sequence where after Nilo's been shot and he's dying and he's like, go to Managua get the best whore and he's like uh, it's okay yeah we'll get you the two best whores because that's that's better right two best whores in, in Managra it's like I want you I want you to do that for me and kind of and Scanlon says yeah yeah I'll, I'll do that I promise I'll do that and you know it's it's kind of a nice moment it's a bonding moment between these two and it's very it's very clear that again in again 70s cinema this ladies is a and nice gentlemen but, I mean, in 70s cinema <laughs> It's like it's like two men in a porno theater, and and one and one comes in, and he's bought the other one a drink. 
but but like as in like it, it's there like and again you have the irony there of Nilo possibly being there to murder Scanlan and then becoming friends in inverted commas but what I really like then is in that closing sequence after Scanlan gets back and after he meets with the oil executive and he's given the papers and he's given the check he's like the, the oil executive is like you go to Managua that's really great and I hear they have great work for people like you and the first thing Scanlan says is I can't go to Managua it's like all that stuff that I just told Nilo as he was dying was complete nonsense because he wanted to hear it and it would probably make him feel better. I had no intention of following through on it whatsoever. And again, part of me wonders if maybe that's the sense of ambiguity like at the ending there is that it's a little bit of a... <laughs> <laughs> I just said that so I could fit in. Um, yeah. Locker room talk, right? Am I right? <laughs> well, I mean, I, I suppose this all factors in doesn't it you know the way the film ends the presentation of these characters all factors into why as you've said darren the film didn't do well you know it was it was a bomb it it, it crashed and burned it came into cinemas freaking was convinced it was the best thing he'd ever he'd ever done he thought it was going to do really well and then it came out in the shadow of star wars which nobody predicted everyone um, thought was going to be, and we, as we've talked about, thought was going to be this ridiculous piece of nonsense. Well, underpaid, yeah. Just took over the world, yeah, yeah, and it just took over. Luke the world. Skywalker, freaking, like, but freaking immediately knew that what he'd made was not in step with the times. It was, he was, he was, it was almost immediately for that moment when audiences reacted to Star Wars in that they wanted spectacle heroes villains they wanted that almost nostalgic return to an a, a, an earlier bygone sort of simpler age in that sense you know the soaring great old you know john williams evoking like you know corn gold and all these kind of composers they didn't want freaking's nihilistic existential <laughs> romp through the jungle Four dudes to, dying in the jungle yeah set to tangerine dream i don't know i i, I felt like there 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 were some elements of kind of late 70s, early 80s kind of crowd-pleasing stuff. But just maybe maybe a lot of people had already left the movie at that point. Like them, them, them doing, went, doing up the truck like it's the A-team. Yeah. I kind of adored the, that yeah. sequence. As somebody who <laughs> likes seen, a good montage. Have you seen that <laughs> A-team where they do up the bus? And 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 put a whole <laughs> no, armor but now on I'm, it and I'm stuff, off to YouTube. and have like a a um a hatch at the top for BA to kind of like come out of and stuff. Um, <laughs> it, it was exactly it was it was just like that. And then there there was also a scene where a uh like this whole town just um gets like blown up like one thing after the other. But there's no John Rambo. <laughs> It's just this yeah. in, invisible yeah, yeah. John yeah. Rambo is paying them a visit. It's really yeah, well-organized yeah. terrorists, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I do love the idea, by the way, of like, the A-Team as like a family-friendly <laughs> reboot of the way, oh, sorry, of Sorcerer. And like, that's where the idea came from. It's like, if we could do Sorcerer, but maybe make it more family-friendly. But no, back back to the point that you're talking there about Star Wars. And again, this is one of those great stories that's told about Sorcerer, where like, Freakin' was convinced that he had a winner. And it was actually, that uh, was at Man's Chinese Theatre, kind of the big kind of central premiere kind of in the 70s, glamorous uh, Los Angeles location. They had Star Wars in for a week and it played like gangbusters. And apparently even Friedkin's like fellow you know, producers and, and kind of the editor and the cinematographer had gone to Star Wars. And they were like, we should be very, very worried about how this is going to go. 
this is basically over before it's even begun. And apparently Man's Chinese Theatre, like, also realised that this was happening. And when they started, when they saw Sorcerer, they were like, ah, can we just keep Star Wars in for, uh, for a little while longer? And apparently Paramount had to actually pull in a contractual option, say, no, you are going to screen Sorcerer for at least a week as per contract terms, as per, you know, that we agreed with distribution. And apparently Man's Chinese Theatre put Sorcerer back in for exactly one week, <laughs> then took it out again and started playing Star Wars again. Yeah. And apparently in, in that week, it was just a dead zone. And again, Freakins talked about how disheartening it was. He described like one of the worst days of his life being the morning that it was released, wandering down to the end of his driveway, picking up a copy of the Los Angeles Times, flicking to the review section and reading the headline, what happened? Mm. And and it being from the one of the critics, Charles Champlin, who he'd, had constantly been a champion in his work, you know, loved the had loved the the saucer, had loved the Exorcist, you know, had loved uh, the, the previous films he'd done before that, um, the French Connection, Boys in the Band, all these kind of things. You know, he'd, he'd loved those movies, and yet Sorcerer came crashing down. He just did not understand why and i think it was it was he just, he just then went off with his wife at the time Jean Moreau, uh and to france and licked his wounds for a few years i think and sort of you know came back with that all you know blockbuster crowd pleasing film cruising uh in 1980 yeah. <laughs> but you know but that's that proof of the guy you know in that he's he's fascinating to listen to and read because he he doesn't he, he, i think his time has made him reflect on some of the decisions he's made and that he did get a bit out of control and that he would maybe have done certain things differently, like hire Steve McQueen, who would have helped the box office. But Steve McQueen wouldn't have been able to stop Star Wars. You know, he wouldn't. There's no way. Nothing would have stopped Star Wars from, as Friedkin and many others have described, changing the landscape of cinema from this point onwards. And, you know, Sorcerer and Star Wars being lined up is, is fascinating, actually, in how it's it almost reflects that change very clearly that you have two films side by side one evoking the era of the last 10 years are these challenging robust earthy gritty films that get under the skin that are so far away from the studio era of hollywood which was you know fairly safe in its own in its own way for all those years and then you have star wars which ushers in this completely modern era of you know franchises fandom you know all the all the kind of things that freaking just didn't live in and i think it's it's fascinating to see how they came around at the same time and and sad in the sense that while star wars has gone on to have this amazing legacy and this amazing you know inescapable inescapable dent in popular culture yeah yeah, sorcerer disappeared for years didn't it and it didn't even get rediscovered for like 20 years or more, I think. 24 years, roughly. So it was 2011, I think, is when Freakin kind of credits the rediscovery of it properly beginning. Because apparently there had been, is it a cinephile or something like that? There had been this basically Los Angeles uh, cinephile community that had been screening Sorcerer uh, on like regular basis as like a midnight matinee kind of movie. And they've been doing that for ages and it kind of garnered a little bit of attention on the circuit. And, you know, you have a lot of filmmakers who, who speak very highly of Sorcerer. And it became, it was a little bit of a kind of a cult film. I think Ebert named it as one of his favorite films of 77 and one of his favorite films of the 70s, for example. In 1979, I think that Siskel described it as one of the most inexplicably underrated films of the decade. So it did have this little kernel of support. But what happened in 2011, it's kind of ironic because, you know, 
most stories that begin like this don't actually end well, is that Paramount had apparently looked at the finances of Sorcerer and had decided that it was not worth releasing Sorcerer on home media. Friedkin, even during the 80s, during the VHS and Laserdisc boom, was talking about how apparently the number crunchers at Paramount had decided that Sorcerer literally was not worth releasing on home media because it would make a loss there as well. But around about 2011, these Los Angeles film fans who had been screening it about once, once every couple of months got a letter from Paramount informing them that the rights had actually lapsed um, on the distribution deal that had been signed between Universal Pictures uh, and Paramount. And again, there's there's a, probably a whole section, you probably talked about this a bit, as budgets kind of bloomed to the late 70s, you had this uh, idea that in order to finance these films, the major studios actually had to partner with one another and actually had you had to co-release these films because they were getting so big. And that led to kind of thorny rights issues and questions of who owns what and, and how much of what they own. And so what happened is Friedkin actually, because he really wanted the film to be seen and because he was very proud of the fact that like this Los Angeles community was behind the film, actually sued Paramount uh, for discovery uh, to determine who actually owned the distribution rights to it and basically where they fell. And if you wanted to remaster it, where the film negatives were actually physically stored. And through that court case, he managed to get a hold of the records. He discovered who actually owned it. He discovered where the film negative was kept. And he actually went and he remastered it. And again, he's talked about this as a proper kind of six-month thorough rescanning of the film, back to basics, restructuring the film to get it exactly what he wanted it to look like. It premiered, I believe, at the Venice Film Festival. Um, it then went on to premiere at a French film festival that was specifically dedicated to re-releases. And then basically kind of from there jumped into limited cinematic release, which I think is possibly where you mentioned seeing it, Tony. And from there onto a special edition Blu-ray. And it's kind of funny that you mentioned kind of Friedkin mellowing in his old age. And, and you're entirely right. Friedkin has mellowed in his own age. He's become a lot more willing to concede his own arrogance and hubris. But at the same time, every once in a while, you'll see the flash of that old classic William Friedkin coming back. Like, for example, when he left a one-star Amazon review of the Blu-ray of Sorcerer, complaining that they had not made it available on DVD for people who did not own Blu-rays. Uh, which is a very much a William Friedkin move. He apparently has a very active Amazon reviews page. I'm not sure if it quite compares to that of, say, George Takei, for example. Uh, but that film did did lead to a kind of a rediscovery and a reappraisal uh, of it. And it frequently featured in end of list kind of celebrating kind of the best of non-new cinema in 2014. The best kind of rediscovered classics, which is, is remarkable. And it's very heartening to see that, I think. It's very heartening to see a film that, you know, was written off, that was considered a lost cause, being properly reconsidered as a classic. And again, you, you arguably see this with Heaven's Gate, where there's been a kind of a reappraisal of Heaven's Gate saying it's not as bad as everybody says it was. Or even Ishtar, where there's a lot of, well, actually, if you look at Ishtar, it's a very interesting film in many ways. But it's rare that you see as complete a reappraisal as what has happened with Sorcerer, where people aren't just saying the film didn't deserve to bomb or the film didn't deserve the harsh reviews that it got. People actually say, no, this is a classic. No, this is one of the best films, if not the best film that William Friedkin made. And he is regarded as one of the great American auteurs of the 70s. And it's kind of fascinating how time kind of gives you that distance and how so much of what a film is can change. And again, we, Andrew and I, we co-host a podcast called The 250 where we look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time Sorcerer actually doesn't have enough votes to qualify for the list. It only has 16,000 uh, votes on the INDB at the moment, which is striking 
for a film that was made by a man who directed the third most successful film of all time directly before he did this. Uh, and it's it's kind of interesting how that reappraisal works, I think. Maybe this is a sign that more people need to discover Sorcerer, possibly. And, and you know, people listening to this podcast hopefully will have watched the film before they've listened, <laughs> given we've ruined Sorry. it all. But yeah, but also, hopefully... The world is a terrible place. Spoiler. <laughs> hopefully we'll share it, you know, hopefully we'll, you know, point it out and, and make people aware this film exists, because I still don't think, outside of cinephiles, it's necessarily massively well-known, certainly not to the extent The Exorcist is, and to some extent The French Connection. I think Sorcerer is still one that needs to be discovered. And I think in terms of its position in the new Hollywood wave of cinema, it's crucial. It's a really important film. And in towards the end of that era, and, and you know the beginning of the end of that era, really, Sorcerer plays a big part, I think, in that. Um, so it's an important film to have covered. And I think it is one that I hope in time... More pe- I don't think it'll ever be as, as popular or as well-known as The Exorcist, you know, for so many reasons. But I think it's it's one of those films that I just want people to have seen, even if they don't love it, you know, even if they don't come away from it feeling like it's a really fantastic piece of cinema. At least it's it's been shared. At least this has, has remained out there. That's what I hope going forward. And hopefully this podcast will help a little bit with that. We'll see. Yeah, and it is absolutely well worth seeking out. And again, I'm really glad that I kind of discovered it when I did. And I'm glad I've had the opportunity to revisit it now as well. It is, again, my either my favourite or my second favourite William Friedkin film, um, which is very, very high praise indeed, I would say. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. What about you, Andrew? Where would it sit for you in the uh, Friedkin filmography you've seen? I suppose I haven't seen that many of them. And I, I mentioned being underwhelmed by uh, Boys in the Band. It's entirely possible that I saw a um, a bad bootleg of it because I think at the time I was living in a house where where things might 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 not have been kind of paid for and maybe I didn't ask questions. <laughs> um, did you, Andrew? Did you see the Simpsons version of it? Is this is this the problem? Yeah. I love I love that Andrew was living in this kind of shady, kind of like vaguely illegal, kind of grey market area, but where they trade in black market niche stage adaptations yeah, of gay yeah. theatre. It would always be stuff that. like that. We'd be watching like Buckaroo Bonsai. I find I find it kind of mystifying that it was quite the failure that it was it's it it's a bit strange to me like it it should it should be it should be up there with the with 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 the great movies and and although although it's had a reappraisal i don't think it's it's really entered back into the conversation of being you know part of the canon or anything like that to the extent that perhaps it should. We'll we'll know when it has when it gets into the two fifty. Exactly. Yeah. About well, it, 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 doesn't, <laughs> have, it doesn't have that far. I was say we're going to retroactively I mean, figure this out. Yeah. Yeah. Only yeah, ten thousand. Yeah. I mean, it's more than Taffin. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 sorry, it's less than Taffin <laughs> yes. needs. Um, yeah. That's our ambition, Tara, Tony. Yeah. yeah. We know we can retire Tara, when Taffin Taff, needs. Taffin this. gets. <laughs> Taffin has one thousand three hundred ninety-seven votes. Well, you know, come on, guys. You can't not have seen Sorcerer, but you have seen Taffin. I mean, come on. But anyway, um, it's been, before this cup turns into the Taffin cast, it's been great to have you on, guys, talking about Sorcerer. Thank you for joining the Thank new you. wave coming uh, on the show. Thank you for having us. And uh, yeah, it's been it's been wonderful. So uh, hopefully those quite a few people who listen to the 250 will have crossed over to listen to this um, as well. 
and it will have aired on the 250 before it's on the new wave. But um, do you want to just give people a little taster of, of what your podcast and what kind of things um, they can expect on there? So, yes, no, the, the 250 is an ongoing look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. If you are listening to this in our feed, uh, we'll be continuing our journey through world cinema, taking the world to you uh, in the middle of this time of self-quarantine next week with the wonderful uh Breed Martin and Graham Day joining us for our Anime April, except this time in May. So we're just going to call it Anime. Oh, yeah. Discussing Why Cats did we not Sky, do that? Uh, which is available to stream. <laughs> that would have made so much sense. <laughs> See, this is why directors need producers, Andrew, to prevent mistakes like that. I've become William Friedkin. Um, but yes, so next week we'll be discussing Castle in the Sky, and the week after we'll be discussing Howl's Moving Castle. Um, you can watch both of those, if you're in the UK or Ireland, available on Netflix. If you are not, they are now available for the first time on Google Play and various streaming services. If you are listening to this chronologically in order with the new wave, uh, it is September. We have no idea what we're doing next. <laughs> we do know that for September 21st, for Batman Day, we will be recording Batman and Robin. And we will oh hopefully God. have two very special guests lined up for that one as well. And then later on, with Halloween coming up, we will hopefully uh, be recording the Nicolas Cage classic, The Wicker Man, <laughs> oh, with the wonderful oh Ronan Doyle and oh. Phil Bagnall joining us for that discussion. So we hope you'll join us. We'll obviously be doing other stuff on top of that as well. So we do hope that you'll join yeah, us. Yeah, do. Please. Oh, you, you need like, to... Yeah. This, yeah, please uh, do. This podcast will never end. Like we, we, yeah. there is no <laughs> kind of uh, saving us. So Complete. join us on you, this, yeah. this journey. It surely one day will just become the five hundred, and you'll just yeah, keep going. I'm, I'm looking know? forward to <laughs> when we get to episode two fifty. I wonder if a lot of people will stop <laughs> listening then. <laughs> I do, I do love that on our episode discussing Sorcerer, Andrew's already reached the, where am I going? What yeah. am I doing here? The existential Where break. are you sending yeah. me? Yeah, like you, you can imagine the triple exposure over Andrew's face as Darren lies dead in the back, but somehow still cackling, even though the podcast has already reached 250 episodes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right, well, that's a very vivid picture. I yeah. apologize for that. All I can say is, guys, don't stop listening when they get to 250. <laughs> Just keep going. But we are nowhere near episode 250, obviously. We are, uh, <laughs> we're still in the early days, but uh, we're going to be continuing our odyssey um, through 1977 next week when we will have on the show, all going to plan, Andrew Brooker a uh, great horror uh, aficionado and podcaster talking about the uh, Wes Craven horror The Hills Have Eyes that's going to be our next episode so we're going into different territory for that one and so yeah that'll be that'll be a lot of fun and Remember, we're still we're part of the uh, We Made This Podcast Network at We Made This Pod, and we'll give you a little bit of a taster um, after this about uh, what you can find on the network. But uh, thanks again, Darren and Andrew, for coming on the show. Please go listen to the 250 guys, and uh, we'll see you next week. And until then, keep enjoying the pictures. Uh-huh.